0: As I said, um, can you guys hear me? Is it difficult to hear me? Can you hear me back there? Yeah, good. Uh, I know it's loud with the rain. I'm going to try to be uh, clear and direct. So um, my name is Noah. Um, I've had the privilege of being around here since I was baptized, I was baptized in this church, uh, much like the age of these folks who uh, are sharing their testimonies this morning. And so uh, I'm so encouraged by that. I love this church. Um, it loves me. It's like family, uh, put up with me all these years. So I'm glad for that. I've gotten to have, uh, gotten to be married in this church and all my children born with you all support and encouragement. Uh, this is home for me. And so, um, what I get to do this morning is a, is a real privilege. Um, I'd like to start by saying that, that, Recently, I've walked into some hard rooms, funeral homes, prisons, tents, family meetings, Uh, and I know that this room, for many of you, is likely a hard room to walk into this morning. And so, my goal this morning is to do a few things. Uh, To honor Christ, to tell the truth, to help each of you feel seen and supported, and to unify this body. That's my goal my desire this morning. And this is more than I can do in my own strength and wisdom. My words are not enough to do that. God's word by the spirit of Christ is the only way we can reach that destination. And so uh, would you pray with me sincerely as we begin this morning? Father, as we look at uh, your word, uh, as we look at the mirror of your word, as we open your word, may it open us, may it split us this morning, may it read us. May it convict and encourage, support, and build us as we read it. Lord, protect us in the reading of it. Strengthen us in the reading of it. May your words replace mine. Uh, my, may my words be like yours, uh, Lord. Uh, protect my mouth from glowing places you don't intend, and protect our hearts from going places that your word doesn't intend them to go as we hear your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. If you'll look with me at Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18, all the way through four chapter, 1, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, "'Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged.'" Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. As we ponder these words, uh, for many of us, there are some heavy parts. I know there are people here who have suffered abuse at the hands of their parents. I know there are people here who have suffered under the abusive words and actions of their spouses. I know there are people here who have been taken advantage of and controlled by their employers in the past. And so let me me begin by being very clear. This passage in no way condones the abusive, controlling, and coercive actions of those who would use their position or rank as a way to manipulate those under their charge, those they are tasked with caring for. In fact, this passage has in it a stark warning for the one who would be inclined to power over another. Look at verse 25. It says this, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This principle here in verse 25 is applied, uh, it's most likely speaking in the context of work. Uh, it's intended to point the eyes of the one who is under others uh, as, as a worker, to point their eyes to Christ as their true, as their true boss. And, uh, and it says that a just master will reward them That as they work hard, uh, they will receive a a reward from him. And that he will punish those who take advantage of that. But I think it's also a warning to those who are content to do wrong to others, sometimes under the banner of Christ. I think it can be broadly applied outside of the slave or the bondservant and master context. I'm, I'm confident of that. I'm sure that anyone who uses a God granted position of strength to do wrong to another person will be repaid with no respect to that person's title, role, or rank. I'm confident of that. Jesus is not a joke. He sees every abusive word, every shove, every mind game, every advantage taken, every controlling action, every slight, and every disregard. And he will, without partiality, pay back those who use Christianity as a hideout for hurting others. Jesus will not be mocked. What we consider this morning is the word of Christ. never to be weaponized for our purposes in our homes or in our workplaces or in this church family. Christ will have the last word in these matters. And this is our final hope. His perfect judgment and mercy over those who have wronged us. If you have been abused verbally, emotionally, spiritually, or physically, Christ is saying to you this morning, I saw that, and I see you, and it will be repaid. Justice will come. That's what he's saying. And if you have been abused verbally, emotionally, spiritually, or physically, or sorry, if you have been abusive... If you have been abusive, verbally, emotionally, spiritually, or physically, Christ is saying to you this morning, I saw that, and I see you, and it will be repaid. Justice will come. That's what he's saying. As a church family, we're committed to loving and supporting those who have suffered abuse by those who have been called to care for them. We have a number of outlets designed and designated for that purpose And the best way for women of our church to learn about those outlets is through our highly skilled and trained leaders through the Hope Counseling Center. Uh, You can always reach out to them, and they would love to help you and help you think about what next steps are. Likewise, if you're a a man concerned about some of these issues that come out of this passage this morning, please feel free to reach out to me personally, and I can help direct you to any of the resources uh, we have available to you also. Uh, Many times this passage is treated in in isolation from the verses that come before it. Uh, And by doing that, we miss some of God's heart. We miss some of the crucial details that are necessary for understanding this passage. So let's quickly look back at the passage before from last week so that we can move forward. In verse 12, uh, he says this, uh, 12 to And be thankful. This is the context. This is the marinade of what we are about to look at in our passage this morning. And and in our passage this morning, Paul is answering a question that flows out of the passage I just read from last week. What does it really look like to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love? How does the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? How do we be one unified body? Ultimately, he is asking, how do we live like Christ? He wants to answer that question. And he answers those questions by looking to the home and the workplace, the everyday experience of most people who have ever lived on the face of the earth, the human roles we all play in this world, husbands and wives, parents and children, laborers and those who oversee and benefit from that labor. That's the world we live in. And so he speaks to that. In that context, in those contexts, we express who we really are in Christ. And those are the hardest places, the hardest places to live well. I can be whoever I want you to think I am on Sunday mornings. I can do that. But if you want to know me, come to the house. Watch how I father. Watch how I interact with Steph. Better yet, come when I'm tired. Right? Come after a long day of, of bearing other people's burdens and solving problems and talking all day. So, so how do I do then? It's there that you will know me, the real me, who I really am. And this is the beauty of the Christian life. It is not about acting like something or faking it here on Sunday morning. It's about being like Christ, the gritty process of growing into his image at home and at work. This morning, I'm going to break from my typical approach of working verse by verse through the passage. Uh, we'll consider each verse, but a, a bit out of order. And, brothers, I would like to begin with you and I first. We will first consider how a husband lives like Christ, and then we will ask the same question of fathers. <laughs> Look with me at verse 19. It says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Pretty simple, right? One do, one don't do, uh, a two. You know, a two-point list, I can handle that, right? Pretty easy. Not so much. Uh, The word rendered here as harsh can also be translated as bitter. Uh, A good rendering is don't be embittered towards your wife. And Paul is denoting a disposition here. And if you look at the other uses of this word in the the New Testament, it points to a bitter taste that leaves one feeling sick to their stomach kind of like heartburn. How often have you heard someone say about their spouse, they make me sick? This is a revealing statement of embitteredness. Husbands, the Holy Spirit says to us through Paul that this is not an option. We cannot allow our disposition towards our bride to devolve in this way. A bitter taste in our mouths, a sickened disposition toward. That is not allowable towards our wives in Christ. A bitter heart spills out bitter words and bitter actions. So ask yourself are you developing a taste for your wife? Do you daily sweeten yourself to who she is rather than dwelling harshly on what you would prefer that she be? Do you protect your heart from the embittering practice of comparison? Do you see your wife as a gift from God or a burden to be carried? Do you see her as a help for your deficiencies or a hindrance to your excellence? Brothers, the antidote to bitterness is love, Paul tells us. Love, in English, is a quite unfortunate word. It's been emptied to have very little meaning in our time. It can be applied to one's hobbies. It can be applied to one's vehicle. It can be applied to one's house. We say we love all of those things. So, brothers, let let me take this empty word and fill it up for us. Let me add some detail to it this morning. Love is the thing that causes a man to die for his friend. It's gutsy and it's gritty. Love is the thing that causes a man to work a job he hates to make sure his people are taken care of. It's stubborn and it's selfless. Love is the thing that causes a man to apologize when he said the right thing the wrong way. It's humble and it's honest. This type of love can only be understood in the person of Christ. He gave up his rights to make you righteous. He gave up his life to give you life. He gave up heaven to bring you home. Those are not preaching points. That is the fabric of reality. That's a way of life. This is the life we are actively pursuing as Christian husbands. We are trying to be like Christ, and he is working to make us like him. So what does love really look like, Paul, we might ask? Really, seriously? Like, give me some detail, and he does that. He says it like this over in First Corinthians chapter 13. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. For the husband who claims Christ, for the husband who claims to love his bride, there's never an excuse for arrogance, never a reason to be rude, never a decision without considerate compromise, never an irritation that should go unaddressed. Resentment must be rejected. Love is a disposition that is hopeful, it's trusting, it's enduring, it's patient and kind. That's what love is. Ask yourself this, how does Christ love me? Should Christ be embittered and sickened by how I act, how I fail, how I forget, how I do the same thing over and over again? Yes, he should be. But he has chosen to see us differently, he has chosen at great cost to himself to see us as his beloved. He's not asking us to do something that he's not already done. Brothers, let your beloved be the sweetest of flavors to you. This is what love does. Love gives, love costs, love beautifies, and love sweetens. So you have to ask yourself, if I feel bitter to this bride the Lord has shared with me, am I really loving her? And if I'm not loving her, what does that mean about my relationship to you, Jesus? You have to ask yourself that question. Brothers, this is hard. And I'm the first to say that I have failed at loving my bride on so many days. But because of the grace of God in Christ, I truly am growing away from bitterness towards being a husband who loves I have a lot of miles still to travel, but I am moving forward. And that's only by the grace of Christ. Only by the grace of Christ can we be like him. But listen, we don't do this alone. You're not asked to do this by yourself. We need support from the body of Christ. We're we're growing together as a body. And this morning, I'm going to ask that we all participate as we are able. This is going to be an interactive sermon. I'm going to call you and invite you to be a part of what we're doing this morning and i would like to ask all the husbands to stay seated and anyone who is not in the category of husband i'd like to ask you to stand if you're able we stand up if you're not a husband and i would like to ask those who are standing to pray for the husbands around you briefly softly biblically if possible 30 seconds or so really simple I want you to pray in support of these men. They're asked to do a hard thing. It's difficult. And without your prayer and without the Spirit of Christ, they will not prevail in this. And so, for about 30 seconds, I want to ask you would you just pray softly, briefly for the men around you, the husbands that have been asked to live like Jesus? They need this from us. Would you pray? God, give these husbands the grace to to love their wives like you love the church. That's what we're asking, to love that way, to love like you love. Lord, remove, extract harshness and bitterness from their hearts that they may walk in love towards these beautiful people that you've put in their care. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Look with me at verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Again, a handful of words, but right on target. Here, fathers are only warned about what not to do. To provoke here is like poking a fire, like to stir up, it may say sometimes. It can be positive or negative, but here the negative result of the father's provocation is clear. Discouragement, it says, literally to lose heart. So provoke here seems to denote a, a contradictory or competitive disposition towards one's child. Uh, and, and as a dad, often I know that fathers, they hope to push their children towards good, thra- good things through provocation, good grades, athletics, the arts, obedient at school, obedient at home, hygiene, right? Often we say things like, when I was your age or we compare our experience to theirs. Like when I was your age, it was way harder. Like yeah, It's like a competition thing that we do. Why do we do that? I don't know. And we hope that it's like going to push them along, right? But if we look at the only other use of that word provoking in the New Testament, it talks about how the impoverished Macedonian church provoked the other more wealthy churches to give generously to support those who were under a famine, They're the words used to show how they provoked others through their own godly living. Their generosity led others to be generous. And brothers, I believe that being a father is much like this. It means we pull rather than push. If, If I want my kids to be better than me, I can't push them past where I've been. I have to be better today than I was yesterday and pull them forward with me as I grow. We humbly invite them to grow with us. We encourage them from a place of having not arrived yet, pointing to Christ as the destination. And again, I think this is all about disposition. So Dad, ask yourself: Is your disposition toward your children pokey? You poke them? Do you provoke them? Is it contradictory and competitive, or is it courage-giving? Is it heart-strengthening? Are you pushing your children or pulling them with you where you are going, strengthening them in that? Once more, I would like to ask anyone who is not in the category of father, if you're not in the category of father, if you'll stand up. So we're going to do this a couple of times through the sermon, right? We're going to stand in prayer with our brothers who are fathers. And, and I, I would like you to pray, um, and I would like you to pray briefly, but out loud a little bit, like, like softly praying out loud that your words might encourage and build up, right? Not competitive prayer, but... <laughs> can you do that? We can do that, right? We all know how to do this. It's okay. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, you don't have to but I would love if you could do that. Something brief, like, God, grant these fathers the courage to encourage their children, right? Through their own good lives. Give them grace, Lord, something like that. Okay, would you lead us in prayer? Oh, Lord, as a father, this is is such our temptation to push and to poke. Lord, give us the grace to pull along, to encourage, not to drag, but to inspire. That my example would be uh, a godly example to my children. That they would say, yes, that's the life I want to live. I need grace for that, Lord. Do that in me. I ask for that for these brothers also. Amen. Look with me at verse 18. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Again, English fails us a bit here. Our minds go to the most negative of connotations many times when we hear the word submit. Uh, If you watch mixed martial arts, often one opponent will submit another by choking them or bending an extremity to the point of breaking. If you watch Nat Geo, a calm and submissive state is Caesar Milan's goal for the dogs that he's training. And both of these examples use the word before us in quite an unfortunate way. One to make a dog behave, and the other to make a human give in. And neither of these ideas are congruent with the way of Christ. Submission here is not referring to a blind obedience to someone else's will. It's not referring to a coerced adherence to ungodly direction. It's not a, a shut up and do what you're told relationship. No, not at all. Not at all. Rather, I would like to suggest this as a working definition. A willful, willful disposition of honor and support of one's husband in reference to Christ first and husband second. Not coerced or demanded, not manipulated or controlled, but a willing personal decision to honor the place a husband serves within a home and family, a Christ-focused disposition that seeks to affirm and honor the loving leadership of one's own husband. This disposition does not depersonalize or silence the wife, rather it invites her to partner in the way of Christ alongside her husband. And because Christ is the primary focus of this submission, it frees her from the burden of ungodly or immoral demands that may be placed upon her by her husband. In the late 90s, my brother, uh, he started teaching me how to play guitar, and rather than teaching me to play chords or kind of strumming patterns first, he insisted that I first learn how to tune my guitar. Well, the first thing he said, you got to learn how to tune your guitar. And I appreciate that, that was super helpful. But during that time, I didn't have like a tuner. It wasn't like a machine. I mean, people had them, I just didn't have one. I didn't have a piano. So the way that you would tune your guitar is you would have like a tuning fork. And so a tuning fork is a small piece of metal that when you tap it, it makes a bright ringing sound that is in a designated key. And this sound can be used as a point of reference for for tuning one's guitar. The top string is tuned to that sound, and then all the other strings are then tuned in reference to that top string. If the top string is tuned correctly in harmony with the tuning fork, then all the other strings will be in tune. Sometimes, if you're like me and had a cheap guitar, sometimes you might have a guitar where the top string goes out of tune easily, and the other strings, they hold tune pretty well. They hold tune nicely. And in that case, you would need to more consistently retune the top string in reference to the tuning fork. But you would never tune the other strings to the out-of-tune top string. You would never do that. And I believe that Christ is like the tuning fork that husbands and dads are to be tuned to, and that when they are in tune, then those they love and serve, their wives and children, will joyfully join in the harmony. But I don't believe that wives are being asked to tune their lives in reference only to their husbands, but primarily to Christ, to keep in tune with Jesus. And rather than dropping their tune to match the dissonance of their husbands when they go out of tune, to say it more positively, where the husband is in tune with the Lord, the wife should happily, willfully, and harmoniously join in. And though this illustration falls ever short, I think it highlights who the ultimate point of reference should be, how the wife must respond when Christ is not being honored, and how the husband and wife partner in harmony to reflect Christ. Sisters, you've been given the difficult task of keeping your own personhood while willfully bending your life to honor The place another person holds in your family, choosing to honor that person according to their life and character. Wise submission to another human is not a small thing. But I want you to know that Jesus is with you in this very endeavor. He sees you and He wants to extend a heavy grace to you this morning, a full grace. Again, I would like to ask anyone today who's not in the category of wife to stand. And if you would pray briefly, softly, something like this. Lord, give these dear sisters the graceful, dis- graceful disposition to honor their husbands in a way that is right in your eyes. Would you pray that, brothers, friends? Lord, it is of the, of the most honorable and heavy tasks that you have asked of our sisters. God, may you give them much grace, much wisdom, and a disposition tuned first to you and secondly to their husbands. Give them strength, Lord. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Look with me at verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So Paul shifts his focus to believing children. Um, I do think that that children who claim the name of Christ are most clearly in view here. Uh, I see these instructions as flowing out of verse 12 when he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and then he gives these instructions. So uh, most definitely applied to uh, believing children. So, so kids, I want to speak to you for a minute. Uh, so this is pretty cool, uh, that Paul would speak to children. Uh, a lot of times people who find themselves to be important, they don't talk to children very much. Um, that goes for a lot of people. Uh, and what we see here is the Apostle Paul thought that you and your role in the church is quite important. And the Holy Spirit says the same thing, right? That speaking through him, he says, hey, you have an important place here. And God says that as children, uh, we are to listen and follow the wisdom of our parents, that we should obey them in all types of things. The word obey in this passage has the idea of paying attention kind of built into it. So, so it's like a two-sided coin of listening and doing together. And, it, and it's hard. Uh, it's hard to follow your parents' wisdom if you don't hear what they say. My, my children, uh, they don't hear me sometimes. I'm like, hey, hello. Uh, But they work hard at that. I probably just talk too much. Uh, So, I know what you older children in the room are thinking, the age-old question, so if my parents tell me to rob a bank, should I obey? Have you ever done youth ministry? You've heard this question before. Um, It's kind of a joke, but but not really. It, It actually is a great question, and it applies to anyone who is called to be subject to another person. It can be applied to the workplace, the home, the church, or our government. So the question is this, do I follow fill-in-the-blank if they ask me to break a law or do something immoral or betrays my conscience? And I'm inclined to say there are limits on the authority of those who lead us. So no, don't rob the bank if your parents tell you to. Don't rob the bank. Our allegiance, even as children, is to Christ. He stands behind any authority that your parents have. This is why when you obey them, he is pleased. It's as if you are obeying him as far as they're leading like him. And so parents, if you're following my argumentation here, you might feel the pinch a little bit. Uh, And I would say this, the things you call your believing children to do should be quite Christian, like living like Jesus, and never for our pleasure or reputation, but strictly for his pleasure and his reputation. When you call them to obey your words, they should sound a lot like Jesus' words. So, obey me because Jesus said so is not an option here. Or, Jesus will be mad at you if you don't obey me. That will not do. Rather, follow me as I follow Christ might be the mantra here. Or, let's obey Christ together and bring him pleasure together. The second question you older kids might be thinking is, how old do I have to be to stop being in the children category? When do I get to sit at the, like, grown-up table? Um, In one sense, the answer is never, right? My kids will always be my children. But as they grow up and grow into maturity, uh, I don't have to tell them as many things, right? The instructions become less. They become wiser. I have to instruct them less. But the goal is that if they're not living in my house at some point and they, you know, they do something that needs to be spoken to, hopefully I have the type of relationship with them and respect, they understand me well enough that when I tell them, hey, you should love your wife, they say, yeah, dad, you're right about that. So there's a sense in which never is their answer. But there's another sense in which for us culturally, you may cease to be a child when you begin to make your own way in the world or providing for your own needs, uh, maybe living on your own or once you get married. And those types of milestones for our culture tend to signal a transition from child to adult. And lastly, uh, you might ask, uh, what if I'm having trouble following my parents and wise instructions, right? Kids may be asking that. To which I would say, you're in good company. We all struggle to follow Jesus. But here is the good news. Jesus sees you and wants to offer you help. He died... So you kids could be in his family. And so you could have his spirit that frees you to do what you know is right. He truly lives inside of his children. Ask him and he'll come and help you. He'll show up when you ask. So once again, I'd like to ask for children to be seated. Uh, If you're not in the category of children, if you typically sit at the grown-up table at Thanksgiving, if you'll stand. And would you pray for these children among us? Father, we pray for these children And you know how to have us pray for them. You are a father. And so we pray a father's heart, a parent's heart for them. Uh, Lord, protect them. uh, Give them faith. uh, Grow their faith. uh, Do good to them. Provide for them. God, may they see you as their good and true father. The best parents that, that could be had in you, Lord. May they have grace to obey. And may that be pleasing to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse twenty-two. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincere, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So Paul transitions from instructions surrounding the home to those surrounding the workplace. And so we don't have the time to kind of go into the technicality of bond servants and uh, masters and, and all of that. Um, but I, and, and one thing we have to be careful of is there's not a one-to-one correlation kind of between employer, employee, bond servant, master, and all of that. So what I'm going to do here is to try to extract some principles that we then can apply to ourselves uh, this morning. And a few principles that rise to the top in verse 22 is this. Uh, the word obey again here has the notion of listening and following instructions. So being quick to listen to those who you work under is quite important here being quick to listening and quick to obey then we see the words in everything again so once again uh, here uh, we must apply our bank robbing logic right don't rob the bank but in all types of things that you can obey you should obey He goes on to say, don't be the type of worker who only works while the boss is watching or simply to please the employer. No, put your heart into your work, he says, like your soul into it. Be sincere, he says. And lastly, revere Christ at work, knowing that he is watching and cares greatly about what you do and how you do it. Paul continues this line of thinking in verse 24. He says this, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so while this section is sandwiched between instructions to bond servants and masters, this verse seems to function kind of like a junk drawer for all sorts of work. Regardless of the type of of work Paul tells us, put your life and soul into it like you were working for God. He says, you are working for Jesus. You're serving him. The master of the universe is your boss, is what he's saying, regardless of the work that you do. And this is why we can say that there is no such thing as secular and sacred work. We all work for Jesus. So running a company is no less important than running a church. Teaching children to eat is no less valuable than teaching the Bible. Right? It's all work for Jesus. He goes on to say, that you should not work with an eye on payday, right? Don't don't look first to what you're going to make, but with an eye on the great payday when we will be rewarded for all that we have done as God's children. That's his encouragement. That's where he's ultimately taking us. Paul bookends this section by addressing masters. Masters. Look with me at verse 1 in chapter 4. It says this. Masters, treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Christian, let me tell you this. If you have people who serve under your leadership at work in any way, if you're a boss, employer, manager, crew chief, foreman, team lead, department head, whatever they call you, remember this, that you have a master in heaven and he is just and fair. And so you must be like him, treating those in your charge justly and fairly as God treats you. So you must treat those whom you oversee. That's what he's calling here. And this logic is thick throughout the whole passage this morning. We do all that we do in reference to our true master, The Lord Jesus Christ, as wives, as husbands, as children, as fathers, as those who serve in the workplace, as those who oversee the serving of others. All is done first in reference to Christ. So I'd like to invite you in that unified reality that we all stand under, regardless of what you do day to day, regardless of the role that you play in your home or at work, I'd I'd like to ask you to stand. And it would be my privilege to pray for each of us as we seek to honor Christ in our world where we live day to day. If you can stand, I would love for you to stand. Father, as I look at these dear brothers and sisters and I see them and I know their lives and I I know for many of them what they do day to day. Many of them I know uh, in some way what is home like. And I know that they need your grace. And I ask that you would pour it out upon them. That you would give them a grace of unity. That this body would function in a way where you are master and Lord of all areas. That you would be king. That we would look first to you in any of the sacrifices that we make. We would look to you first as our point of orientation. That's what you're calling us to today, regardless of where we serve or what role we play in this world. Jesus, we need you by the Spirit to work in us, to accomplish this in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, he's not asking you to do anything that he has not done first. That's what you have to know about all of this. Jesus has led out in this. He has led the way in this, and this table this morning is one of the most clear pictures that we have of that. His service of others ended at a table like this, where he would picture and image his sacrifice on our behalf. It's a reminder of that truth. And brothers and sisters, as we approach this table this morning, I'd like to ask you to do a few things. If you've been faced with your own failure to live like Christ this morning, I would like you to spend a few moments seeking the forgiveness that only Jesus offers. Coming to this table doesn't do anything in and of itself. As we come to this table seeking forgiveness in Christ, we find it there because this images his work done for us. His body was broken for you and I. His blood was shed that we could be forgiven all of our sinful failings, any of them that you've been convicted of this morning. This table is a picture of that sacrifice and it's a picture of the unity that we have together. We do this together, right? That's why we're going to wait and take the elements together. It images that unity. Our togetherness with Christ. Secondly, if there's someone that you've wronged in this room, I want to encourage you to consider how you're going to seek their forgiveness. You may want to do that before you come to the table. You may want to do that later today. You may want to set up a longer conversation uh, for this week with that person. I want to encourage you to follow the Lord's leading on how you would go about doing that. But don't leave that undone. Please know that if you are a follower of Jesus who is walking in fellowship with him, this table is for you. As you come forward, I'd like to ask you to use these aisles on the side here and the middle to come forward, and then to return to your seats, use those aisles here between. Come, gather the elements reflectively, uh, return to your seats, and I will lead us in the receiving of those elements. As we come, I invite us to sing. The sing-